If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today on Friday, August the 19th, two weekends away from Labor Day. Again, where's the month gone? Where has the year gone? Wow. Off the top this afternoon, the online Twitter poll today on Twitter at AM900CHML. Drake has passed the Beatles for most top five hits on the Billboard charts. He now has 30. The Beatles had 29. Who's the better artist? Drake? The Beatles? What do you think? No comparison, please. But anyway, so that's the Twitter poll at AM 900 to CHML. Now, coming up on the program uh, later this hour, we will be talking about a big game for the Tiger Cats as they get set to play Montreal at McGill Stadium tomorrow afternoon. You can hear the game starting at 4 o'clock here on CHML, followed by the fifth quarter. Well, we're going to talk about that game and set it up and see what some of the game keys are. Who is... um, Who's playing? Who isn't playing? What might be watched for? We'll be talking about that a little bit later on this hour. Also, we have uh, been uh, talking about um, Drake surpassing the Beatles, so we'll hopefully get uh, more on that uh, coming up a little bit later on this hour. Cactus Swing. A cactus festival, at least, is back in full swing for the first time since 2019. Couple of years, of course, have gone by since uh, we've had a real good turnout at the Cactus Festival for obvious reasons. We'll hear about that as well. Uh, also, coming up next hour, we'll be looking again at Donald Trump and U.S. politics and find out what's going on as far as the evidence that has been sealed or unsealed and what's been redacted, what should be redacted, and what the possible problems are. Coming up, Uh, After 5 o'clock, interesting topic. Uh, Bell is reviewing what happened with Lisa LaFlamme. They're now doing a third-party investigation into what happened. Uh, What is the culture like in the news center and the newsrooms? I mean, if they listened to people before, then they would probably have realized that there is a problem. But Bell said that they are taking the allegations of discrimination very seriously and will initiate an independent review in the newsroom over the couple of weeks. Now, maybe it's all the hate that they've received on Twitter and um, on other broadcast outlets, the vitriolic comments at some point. CTV says they regret the way that they have news of her departure has been communicated. It may have left viewers with a wrong impression of how CTV regards Lisa and her remarkable career. That's the statement from Bell. We'll talk to an HR lawyer to find out exactly what happened. Is it common? It's probably more common than people think in, in this industry, so we'll hear from her as well. Also, we're uh, talking, uh, trying to get uh, some uh, local reaction here from uh, Sandy Shaw. Something happened at uh, Queen's Park the other day. The local Hamilton MPP was wearing um, basically some jewelry in Queen's Park and was barred from doing it. Daughter got uh, quite upset, so we'll hopefully, uh, we're chasing her down to talk about that uh, as well. And we'll, you know, you never know, we may open up the phone lines as well and talk to you uh, as we get set for um, an 
weekend of a lot of stuff going on in southern Ontario, which is good because we've all missed the opportunity in the past to uh, talk about uh, things that are going on. And the CNE, of course, opened up today at 10 o'clock. And from what I understand, record-breaking attendance could be possible. The uh, ticket sales are going through the roof, which is good. Uh, the ticket sales are really, really going well for the CNE talked about this in the news center earlier today and a lot of people heading down to the x uh, not driving a lot of people going on go transit which is good as well which puts some money in go transit's uh, coffers so all in all it's a good weekend they've got uh, the start of the x as we mentioned we have the uh, dundas cactus festival which comes up this weekend next weekend it's the winona peach festival you know we <laughs> we also talk we talk about everything in the chml news center about uh, the importance of attending the winona peach festival basically to get a peach sunday which basically is just you know peaches with you know the ice cream and the stuff on but it's so good and that is a tradition and and people go all the time to take part in that so we'll be hearing about that as well and then you get past next weekend and the weekend after that is labor day and then the kids go back to school and from our standpoint here in the media, it'll be a lot easier to get a hold of people and guests and stories because everybody's on vacation, it seems. And, of course, they're entitled because it is August. But uh, certainly uh, today is uh, a day where we're chasing a lot of guests and things can go on the fly and change uh, momentarily, um, as so often is the case. So that's kind of what the plan is for the uh, program today. Again, a Cactus Festival is underway. We'll be chatting with the organizer, uh, the entertainment director, as it were, about the Cactus Festival in Dundas uh, coming up uh, after the break. And then we'll be talking about uh, the uh, Saskatchewan story today that basically is asking uh, where have all the CFL fans gone. We kind of talked about this earlier this week. Uh, There may be a little bit of concern what's going on. We'll see what happens because I know that... uh, there were some empty seats in Mosaic Stadium in Regina. And if that's the case, if that place starts getting empty seats, and maybe it's because of the summer, but if they start getting empty seats in Regina, then they uh, that could be problematic. Well, it is back after a long wait. And it's so good. It's another part of tradition in this city. For the first time since 2019, the Dundas Cactus Festival is back and uh, joining us is the entertainment director of the Dundas Cactus Festival. John Baylog joins us. John, first of all, thank you. Should I even ask, sir, how you're doing this afternoon? Woohoo! I'm almost bald. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, relief would be one of the words that you're talking about when you think about what's happening this weekend. Well, it's a great relief, and I'll tell you, we got tons of stuff going on. We've been in hiatus, like you said, for a couple of years, but we're back with all 24 barrels. We got the box appearing tonight uh, with the Practically Hip opening. Tomorrow night is David Wilcox. We've got a family fun zone uh, tomorrow with a sing-along uh, with kids early in the morning, a teddy bear's picnic. Um, we've got it free inflatables. We've got pony rides, face painting, four stages of entertainment, one homegrown stage just dedicated to new and emerging bands. 
So we've got lots going on, my friend. So now let's uh, talk about uh, this. I know that uh, your staff and the vendors and the entertainers, I know that uh, you're you know, obviously trying to communicate that you know, things are okay. Um, was it fair to say that the excitement was rising as the date got closer when people realizing that, hey, this is now officially a go? It was, uh, it was a build-up, I'll tell you, for everybody. The board that did a great job putting the whole thing together. Uh, the vendors uh, have been phenomenal. The return of the vendors are like, we have 80 or 90 vendors this year. Um, we have a ton of food vendors, too. The downtown BIA, the downtown Dundas BIA, they're actually, a, a lot of their stores are coming out onto the street to celebrate the Cactus Festival this year. So um, you would talk about uh, having kids involved in this. I know that the Teddy Bears picnic used to be a staple uh, in this city for years and years, and then it kind of you know uh, drifted off, and we're talking about uh, the early to mid-90s here. Uh, kind of talk about that one, because that's kind of a neat thing for kids to go and see. Sure. Well, we have um, the amazing Christopher, who's a sing-along children's performer, and he's going to be there, and he's going to orchestrate a nice big sing-along with the kids. And we have characters that will be walking around. I think we have an actual huge life-size teddy bear that's going to be walking around and singing with everybody And for um, photo ops. Uh, what else have we got? We have a huge area with Lego and Duplo being all set up this year. We've never done that before. We also have a Nintendo Switch Summer Experience. The kids will love that one. Right on the street right in front of, almost right in front of the kids' stage, far enough away that uh, you can have some peace and quiet while you're playing. So, yeah, the Nintendo people here. We've got uh, a tie-dye festival, um, street curling, Robertson's amusement rides, tons of stuff for the kids to do, and it's all free. So let's talk about that one, street curling. Now you've whetted my appetite, John. What's that all about? Street curling. They guys were here last year from the Dundas Valley Golf and Curling Club. They have a booth here, and they do the play street curling and cornhole at the Dundas Valley Golf, at the booth that they have set up here. Uh, cornhole. And, of course, there is a lot of food. We had a thing about uh, what's happening uh, at the CNE, some of the uh, more less uh, satisfactory, less savory dishes. I know that you've got the staples for food down there that people have come to know and love. Oh, elephant ears. We've got the uh, Lions Club uh, with the home-cut fries. Uh, Man, we've got, we've got tons of food vendors. We've got tons of food being served up here. So, yeah, the smell is already wafting through the air. You know, one of the things that I remember, John, and this was uh, back, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, I remember they used to have uh, the Dundas Cactus Festival 5K run, and they had it uh, on the Saturday morning of the Dundas Cactus Festival, and I remember the last year that I ran it for, and this is probably why, uh, it was a day unlike, uh, not like, or probably like today, it was, it was hot. It was sunny, and I remember we were coming down uh, one of the side streets in Dundas by the uh, nursery before we made that right-hand turn to go down the main drag. Well, we were just downwind from a place that served fried chicken, and it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and the smell of grease, John, I almost tell you, I almost vomited. I'm kind of glad you're not doing that race this year because that was a little challenging, i got to admit. Well, I'll tell you, instigatively, now that you've put that out there, uh, I think for the 50th 
anniversary of the Cactus Festival, we may re-implement that race, my friend. <laughs> and that would be next year then, correct? Uh, no, we're at year 47 now. Okay, 47, sorry. Okay, so three more years from now, I'll definitely be in the seniors category. So let's talk about times, uh, when it starts, and uh, what people can expect when they get there. Well, I would um, bring some water, because it's going to be real hot over the next couple of days. But we have a million vendors here with water and soft drinks and ice cream and E-I-E-I-O. But uh, today we start at 6 o'clock, the main stage at the festival patio stage, which is on uh, between Hat, or right on the corner of Hat and Memorial, uh, between shed, uh, the Shed Brewery and the Fire Hall. Mm-hmm. That's the main stage. We start there at 6 o'clock. Uh, we have the Hellbent Rockers starting, then the Practically Hip at 7, and the Box at 9 o'clock. And we should mention, of course, that admission is absolutely free. If people are driving, uh, uh, obviously trying to get through the downtown corn Dundas, you won't be able to because of the festival. So there are places that people can park, correct? Absolutely. The two side streets like that run parallel with King, I think one's Hat Street. And the other one on to the right, tons of free parking in Dundas. There's a little bit of walking, but who doesn't like walking? And actually, it's a nice, it's a little overcast now. It doesn't look like rain, but it's a little overcast, so the, the humidity's lightened up a little bit. John Baylog, Entertainment Director for the Dundas Cactus Festival. By the way, the parade starts as well tonight, so we should mention... Uh, I've Actually, it started last night. Uh, apologies. So a fun weekend is being planned by everybody. Congratulations. I know it's been a long time coming. And, and have a great weekend. The weather will cooperate, and uh, it'll be nothing but sunny skies for the Dundas Cactus Festival. Thank you very much, and I hope everybody comes down. All right. There's John Baylog from the Dundas Cactus Festival. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we get ready for a weekend uh, and a big football game coming up, it'll be, uh, as we say, a sun-splashed McGill Stadium tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock when the Tiger Cats take on the Montreal Alouettes in another huge ball game. And joining us to talk about that one and some of the issues surrounding the CFL is uh, the insider and reporter for Three Down Nation, John Hunt. Hodge joins us. John, first of all, thank you. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Excellent. So let's first of all talk about this Tiger Cat Alouettes battle tomorrow. Tiger Cats will not have their starting quarterback, Dane Ebel. He's in uniform, but he'll be backing up uh, the guy who played for the Alouettes last year. I think you've got a game game key and a game story right there off the skip. Yeah, this will be Matthew Schultz's second straight start. He played four seasons with the the Alouettes. I mean, he backed up uh, a litany of quarterbacks. He was the backup behind, you know, Drew Willie and and Vernon Adams Jr. and Johnny Manziel, the the number of quarterbacks there. I'm I'm not convinced that Matthew Schultz is ever going to be a guy who stands in the pocket and and throws for 350 or 400 Mm -hmm. yards a game, but I thought he breathed some life into that, that Ticats offense last week. He's got the ability to move the ball with his feet, you know, he, he can run the ball, and, and, you know, he can certainly heave it up when he needs to. And so provided he plays mistake-free football, 
I think he could he could do some good things tomorrow. One yeah, of the, leading that offense. One of the things that the Alouettes quarterbacks have done all season, and it, 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 it just drives me up the wall, is they continue to try to go deep. Most of the time, it doesn't work, and I'm sitting there yelling at the television, "Why are you going deep?" All that, mind you, this is the same guy that doesn't like the zone read, which also drives me crazy. But anyway, I'm really hoping if you're an Alouettes fan that they can establish a little bit of a running game against the Tiger Cat defense tomorrow, which then maybe would set up the long pass. Yeah, I mean, and the Ticats, I think one could argue, have have run the ball worst uh, of any team in the CFL. Yep. I know Winnipeg really struggled to run the ball early on, and guess what? They they have figured that out. They, they have resolved that issue. That team has, has run the ball actually very well over the last month. And so, you know, whether, whether it's Don Jackson, whether it's Sean Thomas Erlington, whether it's a combination of the two or otherwise, this is a team that I agree really needs to get the run game going. The CFL is a passing league at the end of the day, but if opposing defenses do not have to honor anything relating to the run game, it makes life a lot more challenging for your quarterback. There's no question about that. You know, flipping the uh, switch a little bit here and talking about another running back, uh, the Argos, if people haven't heard, the Argos have lost uh, their uh, key running back, Andrew Harris, for the season. He's undergoing a surgery on his pectoral muscle. Uh, there are insinuations at the age of 35. It may be tough for him to come back next year. We'll see, of course. But, boy, that is a huge loss. I don't care what anybody says, if the guy is 35 or not, he still brings it when he plays. Uh, the loss of Andrew Harris is huge for the Argos. I would agree with that. I mean, Andrew Harris has had slower weeks this season, but he, he has also taken over games. I, I think of the game that he played uh, in Saskatchewan against the Rough Riders as part of Toronto's back-to-back victories over that team. He took over that game. It reminded me, frankly, of of back when he was a member of the Blue Bombers and, and in his prime taking over games against the Riders. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, who will be in the Hall of Fame. He's got the only Canadian player ever to rush for over uh, 10,000 yards. Uh, he's, I believe, fourth all-time in yards from scrimmage in league history. He passed Milt Stiegel earlier this year in that regard. And so, you know, it's, it's a shame that, that it looks like he will indeed be out for the season. And, and, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, but I really have to say it. I think there's a chance that this is not just the end of his season, but the end of his career. I mean, it would be a darn shame for, for a player of his caliber to go out this way. But, you know, only one in 100 pro players gets the Cinderella story at the end of their career. Most guys end up going off uh, with, with a loss or going off with some, some type of, uh, of, of issue like this where you know he's hurt in a random regular season game and you don't see him again it's absolutely going to hurt the Argos this year no question about that now a huge game tonight because the Red Blacks <laughs> you know you go back the Red Blacks haven't won a home game in an awful long time and it's such a great place to watch and I know that the shots uh, of the stands during the games TD Place is a great place to watch a game they have a lot of fun but you know if you're an Ottawa Red Black fan the question becomes when can they finally A. win a game never mind win a game at home because they keep losing they're going to drop out of the playoff hunt sooner than later well I think that was what the big two wins did last week Montreal and Hamilton both finish right with the W's last week and it happened while the Red Blacks were on a bye. Usually on a bye, you know, you, you can take it easy and relax. But at 1-7, the Ottawa Red Blacks hole at the bottom of the East Division 
just got deeper. And so, to me, this is must-win territory, not just for Ottawa, but also the visiting Edmonton Elks. These teams are at the basement of their respective divisions. Edmonton, I think, has been the better team so far this season. But that being said, they're they're in the tougher division, and they're they're currently actually further out of a playoff spot given the difference within those respective divisions. And so, you know, Ottawa, I, I thought was tremendously disappointing two weeks ago. I mean, the the previous two games, Caleb Evans looked like he'd really started to turn the corner. He looked like a very different player than he was previously. And all of a sudden, he went out there against Calgary two weeks ago and frankly was abysmal. That offense was unable to get anything done. And so they've had the bye week to kind of rejuvenate things, do some self-scouting, look at their opponent. And uh, for their sake, I hope they come firing out of a cannon because if they fall to one and eight, and uh, you know that hole gets even deeper. Because let's remember this week with Montreal and Hamilton playing each other, one of them's going to win during yep. a tie. Uh, they cannot afford to slip any further. They have to win this game. And then the qu- and then the question becomes: It's been said before that uh, Paul Lapolice's job is safe as head coach of Ottawa Red Blacks. But I'm sitting there. If they lose tonight at home again, and uh, they still have that woeful one win, at what point? Do they start to think, you know what, maybe a coaching change is inevitable and we have to do it, even though the team has been, for the most part, fairly competitive? Well, I mean, I suppose anything is possible in pro sports. To me, I would still be surprised if there was a move made despite a 1-8 and eight start. And, of course, they lose this week. The reason for that, I think, primarily, not only do I think you know, sw- switching switching head coaches during a season is is you know maybe it's a good way to get a little boost from your team. Probably not a best way over the course of several months to move towards the playoffs. But the other big issue is I think there's nobody on that offensive coaching staff in Ottawa who can run the offense outside of Paul Apelis. He wears multiple hats, right? He is the head coach. He is the offensive coordinator. He's got Will Arndt, uh, former Ottawa Red Blacks quarterback as the quarterback's coach, but Will Arndt, I believe, is still only in a second year of coaching. And, uh, you know, first of all, you're, you, unless you go outside the organization, which I think would be a surprise to go and hire somebody, um, the most likely outside hire would have been Kahari Jones. He's now in Hamilton <laughs> with the Tiger Cats as a consultant. Uh, I, I think that that is the tougher thing to fit. It's not necessarily hiring a head coach, because you could promote Mike Benavides. He's done that role before. You could promote the special teams coordinator, uh, in in that city, he he's done it before. Uh, Bob Dice, he was the interim head coach in, in Saskatchewan, but uh, I think that is the bigger issue in Ottawa. Is if you fire Paul Apelice, who becomes not just your head coach, but who's who's running the offense? Because that offense is not going to get better by removing Paul Apelice. And, and promoting someone internally. All right, we'll watch this uh, weekend, see what happens, of course. Tiger Cats and Alouettes here on CHML 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. John Hodge from Third Down Nation, thank you very much for the update. We'll keep an eye on what happens, especially starting in Ottawa tonight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A record has been broken. And yeah, it's probably an age thing. It's probably a demographic thing. And our next guest will probably uh, hopefully agree with me because he's 
not uh, in the younger demographic, and I'm not being smart here, and that is um, Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. We had him on earlier this week, but Eric, I couldn't let this go without bringing you into the conversation. Drake has officially broken the Beatles Billboard Hot 100 record. Uh, the uh, Canadian rapper now has more songs on the top five hits than any other artist. Eric, it's a sad day for me. I'm sorry. Another tradition is gone. Um, I think it's just really wonderful that the rookie upstart Drake is finally getting some sort of recognition on the charts. Um, you know, it's amazing. If you go through Drake's records, I mean, okay, first of all, let's back up a second. Right. Yes, it's a little bit of a sad day. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like baseball or sports. Whenever they move the fences, um, <laughs> you know, the records tend to be a little bit easier to break sometimes. Um, but, you know, the Hot 100 only for about a decade has included streaming data. So all these album cuts, song number eight, song number nine that on an album that is never a single when people listen to it that gets tabulated with the album sales now as opposed to the beatles that had to do one single every four months and compete with themselves now you know it's a little tiny bit easier to break the record off the chart but i'll tell you though it's 10 times harder now because everybody and their mothers and grandmothers can write a song and get it up on Spotify. And who knows what happens after that. So it's certainly a lot easier to have a song published. It's certainly harder because uh, the competition is much more fierce than it was back in the Beatles day. Well, then I'm going to say it then. So obviously this is skewed then because the Beatles didn't have to go streaming and all this other stuff, as you say, it was sure. record sales. It was album sales. It was those 45s that I bought from Capitol Records when you put it on the turntable and you had that little half circle and you know where I'm going on this and people yeah, used yeah, to watch that yeah, all the yeah. time. And, and, and the Beatles would have 219 songs in the top five of, of <laughs> because every song that was ever recorded had been listened to probably more than look the beatles non-single on an album would probably listen to at the time more than the number one song that wasn't from the beatles that week wow so now let's right. uh let's talk about drake because i'm i'm going to you know again it is an age thing. It, you know, I am over the age of sixty. Let's talk about that. And and you know, I I'm not a not a, a fan of Drake. I'm not belittling what he does. I'm not belittling his fans. It's not, if you will, my cup of tea. What makes him so popular? I, I think being uh, and growing up in a city like Toronto has allowed him to take all these different cultures, all these different ethnic backgrounds um, in his teenage years and turn them into influences and turn them into music. Um, once you start having success in the music industry, especially now, your phone starts to light up with, well, would you like to sing the chorus on this song or would you like to help produce on this one? And Drake is very, very good at saying yes to a lot of things, but it's the right thing that he saying yes to but when you come a point in time where he starts to use R&B and disco and funk and rap and rock and all of these different styles turning them into something that uh, if you're between the ages of 8 and 25, you're probably, you've never heard this stuff before like this. So it's really no different than the Marvel that I first got listening to Depeche Mode or Tears for Fears in the 80s or Howard Jones. It was just, it was beaming from another planet. And that enthusiasm that I had for my own music in the 80s and late 70s, the same goes for my 18-year-old daughter when she first hears a Drake song. 
It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. I know. I feel your pain, though. <laughs> <laughs> our, I do. Our guest is Eric Alp from Music Publicist talking about the record that break uh, that Drake has broken. Uh, he is now number 30, number one for most for the Billboard t- Hot 100 record. Uh, more hit songs in the top five in Hot 100 history than any other artist ever. And I would suggest, Eric, these days with social media, of course, and I mean, how many times have we seen shots of Drake at Raptors games or other places? That clearly helps as well. So um, I understand it's a different generation. Might we say, though, that this just shows how good the Beatles were? They, They didn't have all this stuff to help them in their career. It was basically just their music. It, it, it's funny to look back on on a group like the Beatles and realize that there are like 1,500 biographies about them. There are hundreds of thousands of photos. I mean, they were probably the most photographed group of people on the planet um, then and now. Um, but when Drake is able to... Um, but here, here's the big difference, though. When the Beatles were being photographed, you had no idea what they looked like unless some editor decided to put them in their magazine right. or newspaper. Yep. Um, you could go weeks without seeing them. And all of a sudden, it's like, is that... Is Paul McCartney wearing a, a sergeant uniform? Like, And then you would have no idea that they had long hair. They just seem to reappear every eight months with a completely different <laughs> look. We know what Drake is doing and looking like every second of every minute of every day, thanks to social media. So all that stuff helps them become, have the most top 10 hits, the most top 20, the most top 40, the most hot 100. And um, because all of that is about his brand. And if you can trust people to your brand, whether you're in business or music, when you say jump to your 400 million followers that Drake has across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, when you say my new single is out, they not only want to see you succeed, but they're going to help you succeed. And on that note, we wrap up for the week and again the weekend. Uh, Eric Alper, as I say, I'll, I'll I'll get over it. It's you know I I understand it's <laughs> if a different not, call time. Call me over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. yeah, yeah, we'll 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 <laughs> chat. We'll chat and commiserate together. Eric, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. All right, so there you have uh, the story on uh, Drake and uh, the Beatles and and the you know, comparison of the two. Well, um, controversy continues. Uh, it just seems with this uh, government, uh, there's a lot of things that uh, are upsetting a lot of people. And now uh, an MPP, a local MPP, is a little upset as well because she was asked to remove a, a red dress pin from uh, the legislature. And she joins us for the next few minutes. MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas. Sandy Shaw joins us. Sandy, good afternoon. How are you? Very good, Ted. How are you doing? Excellent. So first things first, I know that you have been uh, elected uh, to uh, uh, Queen's Park. Was it everything that you thought it was, or uh, <laughs> have, have there been a lot of things that have jumped out at you that, you know what, I really didn't know about this? Well, this is my second, I'm yep. a re-elected MPP, right. so, you know, not a lot of surprises, you know, um, disappointment with the government, the direction the government's taking, privatizing our, our health care meddling in, in municipal government. It, it's an ongoing story of being completely disappointed uh, by this government, not understanding what some of the serious issues are, healthcare, you know, the our emergency rooms being shut down. Um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, mm. but I'm, I you know, hope, hope springs eternal that this government will act in the best interest of the people of Ontario. Now, let's talk about what happened. You wore a red dress pin. First of all, explain what the pin is about and what happened. 
Yeah, so um, I was in my seat in the legislature yesterday, and I was wearing what is called a red dress pin. And this is a, a, a symbol, really, that, that symbolizes for me particularly my, um, my solidarity and uh, my respect for the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And so the, the, the symbol um, is internationally recognized, in fact. You know, it started in Canada, but around the world, people see this as a visualization. The dress um, is a visualization of this ongoing, um, you know, violence, the disproportionate violence that, that Indigenous uh, people are experiencing. And so, you know, the pin itself, it's actually quite exquisite, the pin. You know, it was handmade uh, by a Klingit bead worker. It's a little piece of art. And it was given to me by my daughter, who is a Mo- also who is a Mohawk woman. And so it had personal meaning for me as well as uh, my, my, uh, my sense that I wanted to show solidarity and support for an on- ongoing uh, trauma that the Indigenous communities and families are facing. So what oh, happened? Okay. You, you, yeah. you wore it uh, to the legislature. What happened? So I was wearing it in the legislature, and I, I want to be really clear. I have nothing but the utmost of respect for the staff that work in the legislature. So, you know, they were just doing their job and interpreting what is a rule in the legislature that you cannot wear um, political partisan uh, symbols, pins, and, and uh, you can't even wear like a tie cat jersey, for example, yep. in, in, in the legislature. But I was really taken aback that this was considered to be, you know, partisan or political symbol. Uh, you know, it's to me, it's a, an issue of fundamental, you know, human rights. I, I don't see that as something that's uh, partisan or political. So I was asked to remove it, and um, I did remove it, and I shared that with my my uh, my daughter, who did give me the pin, and uh, she was really quite uh, upset by this, and that's how it ended up becoming uh, the the issue that it is now. People, the reaction to, for people to this it has been uh, surprising in some way, but I think it just represents, you know, what so many people are feeling this uh, new responsibility that we are all feeling, you know, uh, when it comes to the treatment of Indigenous communities and families. I mean, we with this ongoing. You know, the, the, the harrowing news of uncovering, you know, finding unmarked graves of children and babies. And I, I, I saw all of wearing that pin in that context, that it really was something that um, would not be seen as, uh, you know, I didn't even think of it as a, as, a, as a political symbol. I just thought it was something that, uh, you know, I, I was wearing in solidarity. And it really, you know, in many ways it falls into the same category as, you know, the, uh, the the medicine wheel, right, which we wear in the legislature, which is, you know, a traditional um, sacred item or symbol of healing. Mm-hmm. And when you think about families that are grieving these losses daily, I, I just um, I just was really um, thought that this would be something that would be just um, um, easily accepted and would, would not fall under the category of being, being something that was disallowed in the legislature. So after you were asked to re- remove it, obviously you were... Um I, well, what what were the emotions that that you were feeling after uh, they came up to you and said, you know what, uh, you're not allowed to to wear that? What went through your mind? Yeah, well, you know, I, as I said, I was really like, I guess I was really taken aback and felt, you know, I want to say I felt incensed in some way. But, but as I sat there, I thought that this just shows in some way the, how we need to really raise awareness of this issue. The fact that this pin could be sort of lumped in with, you know, like a PC party symbol or, or something like that. I thought this is a real teaching moment or a learning moment for people. We need to, to understand 
what this beautiful red dress um, pin represents, this brooch represents, and how we can bring an understanding to the legislature and how we can continue to raise awareness. I mean, I just thought this is a moment that was an unfortunate moment, a, a, an unfortunate interpretation of a broad, you know, a broad sort of brush rule, and that I think we can do so much better. I know uh, on Twitter some of the responses and the tweets and retweets to what you had posted, uh, somebody had actually um, uh, tweeted, uh, are poppies banned in the legislature as well, like the red dress pin? They're a symbol of respect and recognition of people who faced and lost a battle. So uh, it sounds, Sandy, like reading uh, the replies and the retweets on Twitter, sounds like this has struck a nerve with an awful lot of people and people are upset. You're absolutely right. It has struck a nerve with people. And I mean, and then there's, you know, separate from the archaic, if you will, rules of the legislature, which is actually part of the problem. You know, part of the problem that this, this is an institution that needs to evolve as well to understand the current context. But I, like you, was was, um, surprised, I guess I have to say, uh, uh, heartened to see people knowing that this is not right that we need to, to uh, understand what a critical issue this is. Like, uh, think about, you know, families that are, like, grieve their daughters. They've lost their, their daughters or their sisters or other family members, and that this is something that we can do so much better in the legislature. I'm hoping, you know, I, I do have, um, I, you know, I, I do have respect for the Speaker of the House. I know that he always has an open-door policy, and this may be an opportunity for us not even just within the community and across Canada and around the world to raise this issue. But maybe we, you know what, maybe we can nudge the, the Ontario legislature along a little bit to, to embrace this as well. Hamilton MPP, Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas MPP, Sandy Shaw, thank you for the update. And we'll see if uh, how this thing uh, progresses uh, down the road. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Time to take a look at the end of the week troubles of Donald Trump. And joining us, a guy who knows a lot about what's going on, is Brian Karam. He is a, a columnist for Salon.com and the, a, a host of a podcast called Just Ask the Question. Brian, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be there, my man. How you doing? Good. So let's, uh, okay, so I will take the podcast title, Just Ask the Question. How deep in doo-doo is former President Donald Trump? Well, if you stuck him in the Marianas Trench of doo-doo, he'd be at the very bottom of it. Ah. That's how deep he is in. Uh, he's What you're seeing this week is the beginning of the end of Donald Trump, and you're seeing a, a country that is now becoming more willing to put him in the rearview mirror. And it's the uh, Espionage Act that may get him. It's one of four investigations currently ongoing into Donald Trump. And with uh, with Rudy Giuliani being told he, this week that he's the target of an, uh, an investigation in Georgia, with uh, some of his former uh, attorneys testifying before the uh, um, DOJ and in front of a grand jury, it's, it's adding up. And it's I think that at this point in time, there's no way that Donald Trump won't get indicted. It just now, matters when and for what. Now, if he gets indicted, what would that mean? Jail time? A fine? Um, I don't think... Well, he'd have to be prosecuted and yep. found guilty. And and then if, if, he's, if he's indicted and prosecuted and found guilty, sure, he could face um, 
jail time, but I think a more re- I don't think he ever will see the inside of a no. jail cell. I think the more realistic uh, thing he'd be stuck with an ankle bracelet in Mar-a-Lago in a room with nobody else but a mirror, and he'll just uh, slowly go nuts. Now, if we're uh, lucky. Uh, when you talk about Rudy Giuliani, uh, as the expression goes, if he now knows that he is that the heat is being turned on him and that the spotlight is on him. Do you th- see him as, if you will, singing like a canary to avoid being thrown out of the bus by Donald Trump, which we all know will probably happen? Rudy? Rudy who? Yeah, he'll flip like a pancake, baby. Whatever he's got, he'll give it up. I mean, Rudy Giuliani doesn't want to spend any of his time without his hair dye huh. behind bars. Huh. So <laughs> Rudy will sing. I mean, yeah, he'll sing two or three arias. He'll be up there you know, leading the opera. But I don't know if uh, if that'll save him or not. I think he's still. I think everybody that's involved is going to end up being indicted. Uh, many convictions will come of it. I think there will be some jail time for some, some ankle bracelet time for others, and then of course a lot of uh, you know people on pardons and paroles. But we'll see. Right now, it's the point. The point is getting them held accountable before a, a jury of their peers for the actions that they've taken, because the United States, the one ideal. There's been two things that across the world that, you know, that the United States was was first known for and was and was appreciated for, and and that was a peaceful transition of power, which Donald Trump tried to screw up, and then of course no one is above the law. The ideal that no one that a homeless man and the president of the United States gets the same look in a you know a court of law, and this is stretching that to that point, which is why I think he has to be indicted. Or the United States of America is a just a huge farce, and it's over with. And yet, Brian, I know that there are still people in the states, and Ted Cruz has been leading the charge. Um, you know, supporting Donald Trump and and people of his ilk. Like, why are people still continuing? Or I guess the other question is maybe phrased a different way: Why does Donald Trump still have so much persuasion and so much pull on people uh, formulating their opinions about what he is or isn't about? Well, that has a lot to do with money and his influence. And he has a, a he had the bully pulpit of the presidency and was able to convince many uh, people that he was what he isn't. He's a con artist. He's a grifter, and he's conned and grifted these people. Some of the people in Congress that are supporting him have personal gain to get from Donald Trump being in power. Uh, the one, the rank and file who believe in him, still those that are left, and that, that's a dwindling number, and it was in a minority and is even more in the minority today, um, those people have their own hubris to thank for their problems, and that's, uh, you know, that if they're willing to be conned by Donald, if you don't think Donald Trump's the con man, you're the mark. So, Brian, you you mentioned that there's one of four possible things that could bring down a Donald Trump, so to speak. Uh, if you had to pick one that looks like, I don't want to say it's a lock, because, of course, these things are, are never really known, but uh, what do you think is going to be the one that finally brings him down? I think there'll be, I think all four of them. I think he's going to get indicted for uh, the Espionage Act. I think he'll get indicted for obstruction. I think he'll get indicted down in Georgia. That's the the iffiest one, but the three federal uh, charges that he faces, including uh, seditious um, behavior, are all, you know, potential. I mean, if you look at the January 6th hearing, it was a perfect season. Eight, it was an eight-episode uh, drop start. 
started and ended in prime time, under two hours, had drama, humor, uh, great video, great series, right? Best documentary series ever produced by Congress. That has slowly seeped into the American conscience and consciousness. And, and because of that, there are fewer and fewer people that are willing to go to bat for Donald Trump. He's going to have trouble finding a decent attorney. He's going to eventually be held accountable for his actions. And at the end of the day, I think he will end up, like I said, on an ankle bracelet in Mar-a-Lago, wishing he had kept his mouth shut. Interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, never dull moment for politics down in the States. Brian uh, Karam, <laughs> uh, right. uh, author of the new book, Free the Press at Death, the American Journalism. Thanks very much, Brian. We'll keep an eye on it. Much appreciated. Anytime, anytime. All right. Thanks, th- thanks very much. Wow. So there you have it. He predicts Donald Trump will go down. Rudy Giuliani sees, love the term, flip like a pancake. He'll sing like a canary. Any of the other uh, analogies that you want to use. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. That is the World Junior Hockey Championships in Edmonton. But the crowds have not been what people maybe have expected. Joining us to talk about that is a writer for the Hockey News, an analyst for Yahoo.Sports, uh, Yahoo.ca Sports, and the author of On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race in Sport. Ian Kennedy joins us. Ian, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, first of all talk about, by the way, people are wondering, uh, first period is over uh, out in Edmonton. Canada leads uh, uh, the Czechs, uh, Czech Republic 2-0. Uh, Ian, um, I didn't know what anybody would expect about this tournament. And I can tell you, is you know, like a lot of Canadians, we're all glued to the World Junior Hockey Championships over the Christmas holidays. You know, watch the um, all the games when we can and, and the finals and the semifinals. And I... I really, really couldn't care less about this tournament right now. And I would suspect, Ian, there's a lot of Canadians that maybe feel the same way. Is that a is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement after everything that's gone on. Uh, you know, we are in the middle of the summer, but uh, the, the issues with Hockey Canada and the sexual violence scandals that have been ongoing, I think have probably had to have taken their toll on people in terms of wanting to tune into this. But the uh, the crowds, as you said, have been... Uh, I mean, historically low. I mean, they're they're averaging for for many of the preliminary games that weren't involving Canada numbers that would uh, rival local junior C or junior B teams. So it's uh, really was disappointing, I'm sure, for organizers. But uh, it should send a, a bigger message to those in Hockey Canada and and across the hockey spectrum that there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. You know, the first three uh, day, or the first uh, three games of the tournament in day one, none of those games cracked 1,000 fans. The biggest draw was the U.S.-Germany attendance, as you said, 829. Those of us in the Hamilton area who go to the J.L. Greitmeyer Arena in Dundas, that's what you would expect, as you say, to see uh, maybe senior hockey or a junior C. Hockey Canada, uh, boy, they have a lot of... Um, well, make goods to do and a lot of uh, building their brand because it has taken a massive hit, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. The the, the Hockey Canada scandal, I mean, we're talking about uh, tons of money that's gone on here with uh, Hockey Canada, and uh, people are tired of, of having their registration fees go there and seeing the, the, the National Equity Fund get used for that. So 
it's uh, it's really, you know, I don't think people want to spend another $200 or more on tickets to go see a preliminary game and now in the, the medal rounds to, to spend even more money. You know, Ian, um, I know that uh, it's the time of year where junior teams start getting ready for the upcoming season. And I know that the Hamilton Bulldogs here put out the uh, the email and uh, the notification that they are looking for people to billet uh, players on the team for the upcoming season. Um, and I, as, as a parent, not that I have any kids that are of hockey playing age, the first thing that I thought of is how many parents are rethinking about having their sons go out of town to play hockey and stay with a billet family. I'm not saying that the billet family is responsible here, but just the whole queasiness of sending their son away to another city or province to play hockey. I can uh, kind of understand why a lot of people are feeling a, a little reticent about that. Absolutely. I think, you know, you see the, the, the issues that have gone on with hazing. We've, we've seen issues with billet families with the Reed Boucher case that happened. And, uh, you know, it, it really is. A systemic issue across hockey it's not just an issue with uh, one team or one player or one cohort uh, that we're talking about in hockey canada here this is an issue that goes across the spectrum and sending a 16 year old uh, child uh, you know hundreds of miles away from home where they don't have that uh, that support system in place where they're idolized by people within the community uh, it, it sets them up for, for failure, but also they've been indoctrinated for years, and now they're surrounded by 20-year-olds that can go to the bar and can, can uh, expose them to other things. And uh, the issues are, are widespread, and, and it really is represented right now with these elite players that are at the World Juniors, they're at the pinnacle of their sport, and people just aren't showing up to watch. And I, I think that that, if nothing else, you know, Hockey Canada reacted to the, losing, the loss of sponsors earlier this year, and I think that they'll respond to the loss of fans because without those dollars coming in, um, they're going to have to figure out a different system. And it's, the time is now to, to break that down right to the grassroots and, and build something new that's uh, safer for everyone. I know that the chairman of the board of Hockey Canada stepped down a while ago. I'm wondering if, if other people on the board or on the, uh, on the uh, management team, do you think we'll see more people uh, handing in their resignations and kind of getting away from this situation? I think if we were going to, we would have seen it by now. Michael Brendamore being the only one that's really stepped down. Um, you hear it in the hearings that someone like Scott Smith thinks he is the actual person to solve this issue. And obviously the rest of the board have similar feelings because if they didn't, uh, I believe by now they would have stepped down already. So unless uh, in the upcoming hearings government officials uh, demand that and continue to demand that, and unless the media continues to demand it and the public continues to demand it, uh, I don't think that they're going to step down. Uh, the current cycle for the board is done in November. Uh, we might not see some people run for re-election, but... Uh, I really think it shows some kind of, I don't want to say narcissism, but there's a real misguided self-confidence within Hockey Canada that they can solve an issue that uh, they've helped to cause over the last 
multiple decades. How about overinflated sense of self-worth? How, how's that? that? That might work too, yeah. Um, so how does Hockey Canada rebuild this? I mean, you get through the tournament, whatever happens. We've talked about the money that they've lost from corporate sponsorships and from a lack of fans. Uh, how do they rebuild the trust? Um, as And it is going to be a long process because of what's been happening over the last few years. And of course, going back to 2003, we heard about what happened. And, and there's probably a lot of other stories as well how do they rebuild trust i think that it's it, we have to see actionable movement right there's uh the difference we talk about so much about performative action versus actual things happening and right now we see an action plan uh with the word action but we haven't seen anything done uh we haven't seen new education programs we haven't seen uh diverse hirings or a new board we haven't seen uh the redistribution of of money to support these programs at the grassroots level to better train coaches to uh, remove barriers from low socioeconomic groups or uh, to increase uh, opportunities for women in sports. We haven't seen any of those things um, come to fruition yet, so it's going to be years. I don't think that we can expect a solution overnight, uh, but I think we can expect them to start that solution overnight. And we have a new hockey season approaching this fall, Uh, every coach that's entering that should be receiving some kind of new training. Every player that's uh, entering that season should be receiving some kind of new training, even if it's small because they don't have a lot of time to put it together. But we should be seeing something, and we're not. Ian Kennedy, writer for the Hockey News and the author of On On Count of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. Thanks for the update, and we'll uh, certainly watch uh, what happens with the rest of the uh, tournament going forward. Much appreciated. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks so much. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Hamilton Council has voted to release most of the privileged documents that it's sought to withhold from a judicial inquiry examining the safety of the Red Hill Valley Parkway. That decision was made this morning during a closed door meeting. Now, uh, one of the people involved in that meeting, obviously, beating... um, uh, well, let's put it this way. He, he was one of the people who, who uh, voted uh, to end the attempts to keep the documents covered up. And joining us for the next few minutes, talk about that as Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko. John, uh, thanks. Uh, John Paul, rather, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So let's uh, talk about uh, with nine nothing. Uh, a bit of a, a reversal. Is that fair in what uh, obviously council thought earlier? I think there was some additional information that was uh, provided to us that gave council the the confidence uh, to move forward with releasing uh, all the bulk of the majority of the uh, the privileged documents. I think it's really important uh, for the public and everyone to understand that what we mean by privileged documents these are um, it, correspondence or or advice from legal counsel. So these aren't anything that has to do with uh, technical evaluations or city staff or anything like that. Um, These are all advice between the city and our lawyers. And as, as just as every resident, everybody is protected by privilege when they get advice from their lawyers. So is the city. So that's, those are the the documents that we're talking about. Um, there was some additional information that was provided today that gave council the confidence to be able to release these to the commission. Uh, 
by the most important thing for us, I think, as a council, is to make sure that the uh, Red Hill Cloud, Red Hill Valley Judicial Inquiry is uh, independent and has all the information that they need to to reach an independent decision at the end of the day. Now, I know that this uh, council, um, or the city at least, uh, at large, a lot of people are alarmed over the uh, the ballooning price of putting on uh, such an inquiry. Um, are you getting concerned that the cost of this thing is, uh, is, if you will, skyrocketing? I think we're all concerned about the cost of the inquiry. I mean, these are taxpayers' dollars that are, that are funding this. Um, but at the same time, again, we want to make sure that we are as transparent as we possibly can be. There is hundreds of thousands of documents that were part of the inquiry that the uh, the commission has gone through. There are interviews of hundreds of witnesses, and besides the interview that you see, uh, you know, that may take uh, a day or so with a witness, there's also uh, tons of time that goes into witness prep and, and all the, you know, the hearsay statements and things like that behind the scenes. Um, but in terms of the total cost, you know, we want to get to the truth. We want to get to a final decision that addresses what happened, why, and what we need to do in the future to avoid anything like that happening again. And unfortunately, you know, the cost kind of is what it is. And in the long run, we're hoping that this will, you know, essentially save taxpayers money because we will be able to put in the kind of controls and systems to make sure that our roads are safe and there that uh, you know reduces the uh, the potential for liability in the future now um, as this thing uh, unfolds uh, have, have I understand this is legal stuff and it does uh, take a while uh, is there any indication when this thing will finally uh, be be over with and when we get the final results of this uh, particular investigation well, I just know what the witness schedule is. Uh, I, I'm a named witness. Uh, I was originally supposed to testify uh, next week, actually. Um, I've been bumped off till October, so even the witness interviews won't be finished until the fall, so I'd expect it'll be sometime in uh, in 2023. So, boy, you talk from, from August uh, till October. Um, it, the vote was 9 nothing today, and... Uh, it, there was a council meeting. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, uh, if, it, if the vote was nine nothing, then there were uh, clearly some council members that weren't there today. It was a, a special council okay. meeting. As, as I said, it was uh, some new information that that came up. So uh, the mayor called a special council meeting. Okay. And, uh, you know, Friday in, in the summer, it can be uh, difficult to get everybody together. Um, I'm wondering now, uh, changing tact, uh, going door to door, because we know that the uh, the election is coming up and actually the uh, the deadline for people to register to run is now officially closed. When you go around door to door, because I'm always interested in what various people in various wards have to say about what's happening with, with the city of Hamilton. Any big issue, John Paul, that jumps out at you as uh, what people are are talking to you about about uh, their concerns moving forward? Uh, two that stand out for me in Ward Eight is concerns over traffic and uh, road safety, and also affordability, the cost of living, the cost of housing, and uh, the increasing challenge that people have uh, getting into a home that they can afford. So those are those are the two that really stand out for me. 
Now, um, on the other hand, uh, as we've talked about this before, I live in Ward 4, and there's a lot of candidates running, I believe 10, 10 candidates running in, in Ward 4. Um, the fact that there are people who want to take a run at city politics, because there are a lot of people, John Paul, that don't want to be involved in politics at all for whatever reason. The fact that there are more people throwing their hat in the ring, this is a good thing for, for um, politics, is it not? I think so. Uh, you know, when I first ran in 2016, I was in a race with 22 candidates. Wow! Uh, so you know, that was it was really difficult to uh, to establish yourself from from the pack. Um, but I think the more people that are running, the more people that are interested in political office, the better. Uh, I think I would love to see a higher voter turnout in October. But as you mentioned, you know, it is a really tough time to be involved in politics for whatever your reasons are. It is extremely polarized. And, uh, you know, things like COVID and uh, vaccine mandates and that kind of thing, um, you don't get a lot of uh, friendly emails, that's for sure. I'm just thinking, you know, uh, 22, uh, 22 people running. That would have made a heck of a candidate's debate because you've got about three, I think, three seconds to make your point. Yeah, it was a bit of an adventure, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so that's the update on what's happening with the Red Hill Valley Parkway um, investigation. Uh, Councillor for Ward 8, John Paul Danko, thank you very much for the time. Enjoy the weekend, because we don't have that many more before Labor Day comes at us. Thanks for having me on. You too. All right, so there you have it. To John Paul Danko, by the way, uh, from, from Ward 8. Well, it has been um, a major storm this week, and you can insert uh, whatever you want to term it, uh, the term you use in front of the storm, uh, because of the dismissal of Lisa Laflamme, uh, 35 years at CTV. Well, now uh, they uh, apparently are launching CTV News, the parent company, Bell, launching an internal workplace review over criticism the way that uh, Lisa Laflamme's uh, dismissal was handled. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this is the founder and managing partner of Williams HR Law and the president and CEO of Williams HR Consulting, Laura Williams. Laura, thanks for taking time on a Friday afternoon to join me. Glad to be with you, Ted. Thanks for having me. So let's first of all talk about this because I've been in the, you know, those of us in this industry have all gone through it. We've been called into the boss's office, some of us more often than not, <laughs> and told, uh, okay, here's. In this case, apparently, when you walk into the office and see a purple envelope, you know you're doomed. But you walk in, they've got the manager there, they've got somebody from HR, and they say, okay, we're moving on, and and basically, here's your package. Is there, if you will, Laura, quote-unquote, a good way to handle a dismissal when it comes to letting somebody go? Well, from the employee perspective, it, it never feels good, but there are things that should be done and measures that should be taken to ensure that, you know, an organization doesn't um, mishandle the communication. And certainly when you're dealing with a high-profile termination, there are other things uh, that are um, kind of connected to the termination decision, such as how you're going to communicate the decision publicly, that have to be very well thought out. Now, in your case, when you first heard of what happened with this story, what went through your mind? Um, and maybe it's not from a business perspective, maybe it's from a personal perspective, but what crossed your mind initially when you heard the news? To be forthright, what went through my mind was, you know, seeing somebody that is highly regarded, um, a very public figure, having made a decision uh, to, you know, for example, go gray, uh, which is connected with 
you know, many by many showing your age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that is a difficult decision for women to make, particularly in the public eye. And, and I frankly, I, I couldn't help. My mind couldn't help but uh, make certain connections. So um, that is obviously something that a lot of people are putting two and two together. It's interesting now, uh, from a PR standpoint, a PR crisis communication, now that uh, the quote from Bell Media is, they regret the way in which the news of her departure has been communicated. You know, it seems to me in the communication business that maybe, did they not think that they would get a lot of blowback on, well, first of all, the decision and be the way that they handled it? Well, you know, so it's surprising and somewhat paradoxical, if you will, when you um, read the statement, which is essentially attempting to provide an assurance that the value of, um, you know, the connection of the Mizzleflam to the to the uh, newsroom and to the brand, um, that it was definitely taken into consideration. But um, the fact that the mark was so grossly missed uh, with respect to what the public reaction would be does call things into question generally. Now, I know that uh, what they are doing is they are now uh, launching an eternal workplace amid criticism of the dismissal. And from what I understand, I have some friends who work at that particular company, and they're all basically guffawing and scoffing at that. They're basically that they're a day late, day late, a dollar short, and this information was relayed to them a long time ago about a toxic atmosphere, and they basically did nothing. Is this maybe uh, a case of classic PR spin now? Well, you know what? Sometimes the way that organizations come to reviews of this nature, and there are a lot of organizations that have popped their hoods and are doing some navel-gazing right now with respect to you know, whether or not um, there's kind of systemic discrimination or um, you know, inequities or a toxic environment, you know, whether they, an organization gets there kind of proactively or reactively, my view is it's a good thing particularly given the nature of what a a truly well-run third-party review process should yield. And that's, you know, objective identification of deficiencies and gaps, um, you know, benchmarked against best practice and what should be in place, and then a set of recommendations that should be actionable. And, of course, there are those that wonder, of course, uh, cynical people being uh, cynical that... um maybe what is released by this uh, particular um, internal workplace review, there are those that wonder if they're going to follow through on this or if this is just uh, just words coming out of a head office. Well, certainly, but when you're in the spotlight and, uh, you know, under the heat of the spotlight, then, you know, typically, um, and I'm hoping that there's some really good intentions behind this, but, you know, irrespective of intentions, there's going to be heat and there's going to be a lot of um, scrutiny around uh, the actions taken after any recommendations are issued. Uh, and just before we uh, wrap up, um, of course, as, as we say, um, and our guest is Laura Williams, uh, President and CEO of Williams HR Consulting, talking about what happened with the Bell Media. Um, is it... Uh, this type of thing goes on all the time, as we know, uh, either pre-pandemic or post-pandemic, or businesses make move all the time. But I guess, Laura, in many ways, people are surprised when it happens in the media because it's it's a very public way of doing things. But yet, uh, maybe the fact that we are in the public eye is a reason why something like this, letting somebody go, draws so much attention. That's right. But it also, if we look at the the positive side of it, 
getting getting so much attention is a good thing. It's a good thing not only for you know the, this particular industry, but for all industries. And you know, we really learn from each other's missteps. And uh, I'm sure, and I know already that there will be and continue to be some good takeaways from this situation. Laura Williams, founding and managing partner of Williams HR Law and the president and CEO of Williams HR Consulting. Uh, thank you very much for your um, your update and the input on what happened with Lisa Laflamme and Bell Media. And we'll see how what happens with this going forward. Much appreciated, Laura. Thanks for the time. All right. Laura uh, has, uh, has gone. So there you have it. And again, maybe it's a situation where uh, a lot of us, some of us more than others, uh, have been called into the office uh, several times and told, uh, you know what, uh, your services are no longer required. We are changing a direction. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but when they tell you they're changing direction, you, you know what they're telling you. But anyway, um, there is really no way of, no, well, maybe there is a good way of uh, a bad situation, but uh, boy, oh boy, um, there are a lot of eyes looking at Bell Media right now and um, a lot of spin, and we'll see uh, where that takes us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Some of the other news that maybe you didn't get a chance to hear today, one of the world's largest movie chains is reportedly in serious financial trouble. Top Gun Maverick and more. I just want to manage the expectations. Movie theater attendance is slowly getting back to normal, but apparently not quick enough for Cineworld, the second largest chain worldwide and owner of Regal Cinemas in the U.S. The Wall Street Journal says Cineworld is preparing to file for bankruptcy after struggling to recover following the pandemic shutdown of theaters globally. The news sent Cineworld stock tumbling on Friday. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. On another sad story coming out of Hollywood, Kobe Bryant's widow Vanessa testified she was only beginning to grieve the loss of her husband and their 13-year-old daughter in that helicopter crash when she was faced with the fresh horror of learning that deputies and firefighters had shared photos of their remains. On the witness stand, Vanessa Bryant cried and struggled to maintain her composure as she told the court about feeling betrayed when she learned that sheriff's deputies and firefighters had taken personal photos of the crash site where her husband Kobe, daughter Gianna, and seven others died. She said they violated her daughter when they took photos of Gianna's body. Vanessa Bryant said she suffers grief and anxiety because of those photos. Bryant is suing L.A. County for the photos which have never gotten out publicly but were allegedly passed around between sheriff's deputies and firefighters. Alex Stone, ABC News, Los Angeles. Some local news today. Um, it was uh, an emotional day, obviously, as 197 soldiers lost their lives on August 19, 1942. It was an attempt to liberate the occupied French town of Dieppe during World War II. A ceremony which included a flyover by a B-25 Mitchell bomber has been held at Dieppe Veterans Memorial Park along Hamilton's lakefront to mark the 80th anniversary of that raid. Brenda Wilson, daughter of Dieppe veteran Gordon Rice, recited the act of remembrance. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, 
We will remember them. 582 members of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry were among the approximately 5,000 Canadian soldiers who landed on the beaches of Dieppe. In addition to the 197 local soldiers killed, 283 were wounded or held as prisoners of war. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. New data shows Will Smith. Remember he slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars? It cost him more than just a seat at future Academy Awards ceremonies. More from Jason Nathanson. We're learning just how much that Oscar slap hurt Will Smith's image. His latest Q scores, the industry standard for measuring a celebrity's mass appeal, have dropped significantly, according to Variety. His positives went from a 39 to a 24, a serious decline. While his negatives went from a 10 to a 26. That's a huge jump. His wife also seen a decline in her popularity. The positive score dropping from 13 to 6. Her negative Q score surged from 29 to 44. Well, that puts a cap on what's been happening uh, today uh, locally and across the province. And indeed, all week, it's been a busy week. Uh, you know, in the past, in the summertime, it was always, you know, things were you know, calm and there wasn't a lot of news. But that has not been the case over the last little while. And we've been happy to be here with you sharing some of these stories this week. Thanks to uh, show content producer Will Erskine for getting all the guests and booking them and technical producer William Weber for making sure that everything uh, stayed um, the way that it should be. I'm Ted Michaels. I don't know when I'll be back because I'm, you know, I, I'm in semi-retirement. Basically, they call me when they need me. Or uh, when you look at the list, if there's basically nobody else uh, on the list, then um, they'll call me. But anyway, I'll be back at some point. You can rest assured. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.